Well, as Kaylee said, we welcome you. We're so grateful that you've brought the church into this room. I'm really grateful you did. I had a dream the other night that I showed up here on Sunday morning and I was the only guy in the room. I literally did have that dream. Um, and so it's a great relief to me to see you here today. Welcome. Hey, and we are, I'm also excited for what we get to do together because we're starting, it's a new study, it's a new era. There's some new things going on. And I wanna welcome, you guys are from Teen Challenge, right? Man, that can welcome. We're so thankful for you, thankful for the ministry you do. Exciting for us to have you with us. You're, you're welcome here. Uh, so we're in this new era. And uh, last night I kind of breezed by this and uh, assumed that everybody kind of knew what was going on. And, and I was in the foyer for an hour after the service talking to people about, I need to not breeze through this. I need to acknowledge where we are and, and what's happening here. And so I'm just going to spend a minute or two on this just, just to get us going because we got God's word to get into and, and it'll be good. So as you know, last weekend was Pastor Joel's last weekend officially as senior pastor at Northland. And I could not be more excited for him and his, he and Becky's next stages uh, of ministry. Also could not be more excited about the opportunity we have here at Northland. Pastor Matt Hurd and I are so thankful that the governing elders have entrusted in us the co-leadership of our congregation and in the teaching of God's word. There are some things that will change. What will not change is we will continue to be a church that's focused on biblical training, on Christ-centered worship, on service to our community and to the world, and, in, and to community together. And so Pastor Matt and I have been friends for a long time, 20 years, and so it's a delight for me to have him come alongside and for us to be able to share in the leadership of this. Thankful to the elders for giving us the vision for this and giving us the covering for this as we go forward. And so with that said, I would Many of you have asked, so is this a transition? Are we in a transition? Well, I would propose to you that we're always in transition. That if you're in the church or if you're in a dynamic business or organization, every stage is a transition. We're always moving from one thing. In fact, as, as believers, we're moving from one uh, part of glory to another continuously. So yeah, it's a transition, but it's more importantly, it is a season for us to kind of reevaluate who we are, think about who we are. And so it's why for today's message, we're calling this a new epistle. You know, we think God is not finished in communicating to the church, not just Northland Church, but to all the church. We believe that God is, has got a new message, a fresh new wind that he wants to blow upon his people and encourage us and call us forward in ways perhaps we have not thought of before. So it is a transition. But Pastor Matt has, has over 25 years experience in being in senior pastor type roles. I've been one of your pastors here for 27 years. More importantly, I've been a congregant here for 32 years. So neither one of us are spring chickens, but, or roosters if, you, if you'd have that. Um, but what we do bring 
is a great love for you, for this congregation, and a great love for God's Word. And we intend to, to carry this out as faithfully as we can and work together closely for the benefit of the kingdom and for you, for, because the congregation is why we're here. You are why we are here. And again, as I mentioned, it doesn't change the strong commitments we have to, the, to what God has called us to do in bringing people to maturity in Christ. So with that said, I would tell you that I know you didn't come here this morning to hear about church structure or organizational development. You came to hear about Jesus and to, and to get into God's Word. And that's why I came as well. And so we're going to worship God today as we study His Word just as surely as we worshiped Him in singing His Word. Um, and we're going to begin a new series in, the, in Philippians. I love this book. Uh, it's a letter, actually, an epistle. Now, an epistle is not just the wife of an apostle. I waited all week to use that. I'm a little disappointed in how some of you responded, but I'm going to get over it. I mean, but an epistle is just a, it's, it's just a Greek word for letter. And I probably need to explain to some of the younger people here in the room that a letter is there was a time... There was a time where if you wanted to communicate something to another person, you actually took a piece of paper, you wrote an email with your hand on that piece of paper, and often you would fold it, put it in an envelope, you would pay a government organization then to deliver that to another person across the town, across the world, uh, and where, how long it took depended on a lot of things. And, but then you would hope that someday that person might do the very same thing, sit down with a piece of paper and write you back. And it was a wonderful process, but not nearly as quick as we communicate today. And it's one of our, it's one of our trouble spots actually, that we think that everything we get, even from God's Word, should be done as quickly as possible. And just give me the main idea and let me just kind of take that and run with it. When God's Word is so much denser than that, it's, it's richer than that. And so our plan for the book of Philippians, this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi, our plan is to do this somewhat slowly. Now, we're going to try to make it interesting uh, week to week, but we'll be in Philippians up until Advent. And then we'll take a break during the Advent season. There's another series we'll do for the month of Advent that's focused on Isaiah and the light that God has called us into. And then in January, we'll go back to Philippians and, and we'll do Philippians up until Easter. Here's what you're going to love about Philippians. Philippians is a book all about joy. And so if you're the kind of person that's looking for joy, then this is a book for you. If you're the kind of person that's thinking, man, I haven't seen joy for a long time, checked out of my hotel years ago, well, this is a book for you. And so next week, we're going to do a deep dive into the content itself. My purpose today is to kind of give you some of the backdrop for this book. And as much as I want to pursue joy, which I do, I want to tell you that I think the seedbed for joy is found in hope. Have you ever noticed that joy and hope are things that you have to move toward? It's like fear and doubt, they find us, don't they? 
I mean, we just all of a sudden turn around and like, oh, where'd that doubt come from? You know, oh man, where'd that fear come from? You know, we, it surprises us. Joy can surprise you, but only because of the seedbed of hope. In fact, again, hope and joy is something we move toward it. I love that as part of that song, I'm running to you, I'm running to you. Hope and joy is something I want to encourage you. And we hope that by the time we finish this series in Philippians, that you're running toward joy, that you're moving toward it as diligently as you can. And Paul knew that the church at Philippi would, know, would need this. He knew that the church here called Northland would need this because the Holy Spirit instigated this in him. And so first, before we can understand hope very well, we have to know that we have a common definition for what hope is. One of my elders who's seated right out here, ironically or providentially, Dr. Kirk Solberg, gave me a book this past week by John Eldridge that has a great definition of hope in it. I read this book this week and I encourage you to check this book out as well. Uh, but let me give you John Eldridge's definition of hope. He writes this in his book. I want to put it on the screen because it's a little bit lengthy. By hope, I don't mean wishful thinking. I'm not talking about holding a positive thought. When I speak of hope, I mean the confident anticipation that goodness is coming. A rock solid expectation, something we can build our lives on, not the delicate and fragile hopes most people are trying to get by with. It's in Eldridge's book, All Things New. I love this because, you know, this is the business that God is in and, and has always been in, renewal. He's in the renewal business and we get restoration as a bonus. Even Jesus said, as, as the book of Revelation closes, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. I think that that includes you and me. I think we're included in what he is making new, who he is making new. You may have gotten up this morning like I did and looked in the mirror and thought, that doesn't look very new. But let me tell you, God is making us new. And the newness of who we are, I think, starts with the joy that's in our life. And the joy that we have rests in the hope of what God has done. It is rock solid. You can count on it. It will never fail you. You can trust this hope that comes from what Jesus has done on your behalf and his great love for you. And today I want to talk to you again about the backdrop for this great book of Philippians. Now, when you think about uh, different, ver different parts of the Bible that you love, you know, it's easy for us to go through and say, well, I've found my life verse. Have you ever done that? Found your life verse, a verse that you just hold on to that put it on your mirror, you put it on your, in your car. It's a verse that, that kind of has a journey for you in mind. Well, Philippians is full of life verses. You know, I'm going to read just a few of them to you because I think you could go through here. It's kind of like, you know, uh, the coffee mug verses. You know, if you go into a, a, a Christian bookstore or something and you, and you see all the coffee mugs, you could populate an entire bookstore with verses from Philippians. And let me read a few of them to you. I'm sure of this, 
that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You could preach for the rest of the day on that verse alone and in the coming weeks we will. But right now, just that wouldn't that be a great verse on a coffee mug? You can be sure of this. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Then, so then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and work out his good purpose. My goal is to know him and his power of resurrection. I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue the goal as my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Do you want me to go on? I can because there's a lot more of these verses in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through him who strengthens me and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches. Anybody want to buy a coffee cup right now? And we just are getting started with Philippians. This is not even the, the, I mean, we could go on and on with this. So let me tell you one of the trouble spots sometimes we can get, we can get caught up and think, I just want that verse and nothing else. But I want to promise you, you want this whole letter. You want this whole letter that Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and the church at Northland. Here's the difficulty with just having one verse that you hang on to. Back in the day when I mostly did youth ministry, there was a common practice. I assume this still happens, but students would get yearbooks every year in, in, the, in the spring. And, you know, it was a, it was a deal. You get a year, people, they'd bring their yearbook in. You'd sign your name. You'd write some encouraging statement, you know, when God closed the door, he opens a window, things like that, you know, you write that. And then you'd write a verse, just the verse under, not the actual, uh, what the verse said, but you write just a verse notation, you know? And, and so I, I thought, well, that's a fine thing to do, but I just started wondering, I wonder how many of these students actually go home and look these verses up. And so I came, I came up with a different verse and I would write a verse in the yearbooks and I'd say, this is my life verse, you know? Okay. And my verse was Job 1917. Now, you know, we're in trouble already because it's Job. And very rarely did I ever have a student come back. And some students, so five years later, would come back and say, what in the world were you thinking writing that verse in my yearbook? I looked it up. My breath is offensive to my wife. And I am loathsome even to my brothers. I know it makes you a little uncomfortable. I meant it to be uncomfortable. I don't know why. It seemed to be funny at the time. It's not that funny now. But... It's the trouble with just hanging on to a verse and thinking, I just need this verse. No, brothers and sisters, we need the whole counsel of Scripture. We need to take it all in. We need to see the context. And that's our hope for you. That's our hope for you over these coming weeks and months as we study this letter. So my job today is just to tell you, again, some of the backdrop of this. And I'll do it as quickly as I can. But there's a, it's, this thing is pithy, it's dense, and I hope you'll read it for yourself just to make sure I'm not making 
making this stuff up. So Paul is writing this letter to a church at Philippi. This church, this city of Philippi is a Roman colony that was modeled after Rome itself. The people there was an outpost. There were some famous things that happened in Philippi. We'll tell you about them in the coming weeks. But some famous things that happened to where, but this was not a strategic city as far as Paul was concerned. It's not where he initially wanted to go to plant a church. He wanted to go somewhere else. But again, you'll hear more of the story later, but, but through the providence of God, the Holy Spirit redirecting his path and some circumstances that God allowed to happen, Paul could not go where he originally intended to go to establish a church. Instead, he was redirected to Philippi. Now, Paul's process for planting churches everywhere he went was pretty simple. Not easy, but pretty simple. He would go into a community. He would find, if he could, some God-fearing men and women. And then those that didn't know Jesus, which would be most of them, he would evangelize them. He would tell them of the gospel. And then as they responded to the gospel to put their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ, he would then establish that church by raising up and equipping those believers. And he would raise them up to the point that they were, became the leadership of the church. And then he would entrust that church to those believers and he would move on to another location, just like he did at Philippi. But here's the difference when he got to Philippi. When he got to Philippi, he could not find 10 righteous men, which was kind of his benchmark for where to start. But because he knew that this town, this colony was set up a lot like Rome, he knew where there would be some people praying. Now they were praying to God as they understood God. They were not praying through the power of Jesus Christ yet. But he went and it was down by the riverside. And so Paul uh, goes there. And so rather than me telling you the story, let me let Luke tell you the story because Paul had this entourage that was traveling with him on this journey. We know of several people it included. It included Luke because Luke recorded it and it's found in Acts chapter 16. You can read it for yourself. We also know that Silas was a part of this traveling team. We also knew that Timothy, his younger protege, was a part of this team. We also knew, know there were women and other men who were traveling along with him who were part of this entourage to go and plant these churches in different places. And so here's what Luke says recording Paul making this journey. So it's in Acts chapter 16, 11 through 15. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyatira, 
a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. It's an important part of the story for you to realize that Lydia, who was most likely a woman of Asian descent, that's her ethnicity, was a very wealthy businesswoman, an entrepreneur in the mercantile industry. Lydia, a faithful woman though, and a woman seeking after God, heard the gospel, responded to it, and she was the beginning of the first church in Europe, the first church to be established in Europe. And the significance of this for us is to realize that Paul went in there and he was directed by the Holy Spirit to her. Now Lydia played a significant role then in the formation of the church and beyond because the first thing she did was very practical. She said, I got a big house. You and your crew need a place to stay. Come stay at my house. And they did. And Lydia took care of them. She took care of them financially. She provided for them a place to stay. We know from later scriptures that Lydia also continued to, to give financially to the work of Paul. We also know that her home was large enough that the church met in her home. That's how the church in Philippi began. And, and the significance of that to me is to realize that God uses people from all kinds of situations to accomplish his purposes. And that Lydia was someone that had a significant role in getting this started. But then it was not Lydia alone. It never is one person. And so the story goes on, and this is such a great story, because the next thing that happens is in Acts 16, just reading on two more verses I want to read to you here, that's part of this part of the story. And so Luke then says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Now, there's a couple of really interesting points in this part of the story. One, it makes me feel a little bit better about myself to realize that Paul had a short fuse. <laughs> Paul became greatly annoyed. He wasn't annoyed with the woman, the young woman, you understand. He was annoyed by the enemy, by Satan himself. He was annoyed that Satan had just pestered him through this evil spirit for days. And, but here's what he was not annoyed about. This young woman, likely a Greek in her ethnicity, not only was she very poor, but she was a slave. She was in bondage. She was trafficked. And her owners used her to gain a, a living for themselves by having her do fortune telling. And, and she apparently made them a very good living. But what Paul did was he went with what the spirit was doing 
And, and when even, you know, even the demons recognize the Spirit of God, we see that several, a lot of places in Scripture, and even this evil spirit that's in this young, poor woman, a slave, recognized the divinity of the Spirit that they were teaching and calling people to put their confidence and hope in. And so Paul called that evil spirit out of that woman and she was set free. Now, do you get the significance of this? She is a slave and she is set free. That would change anyone's life, would it not? We see that happen here almost on a daily basis. We have a ministry called One to One Hope and Meg Johnson and others who, there are lots of people even in our own community who are trafficked and, and when you see them finally set free of the circumstances they're in, it's profound. We can't even, there, none of these stories can we actually tell you of who they are, but to watch it, and I've seen just a handful of these, many have happened. I think last year, 54 women were impacted through this ministry. But to see that happen is revolutionary, not only to them, but to those who are involved in, in participating in it. And so this young woman, she becomes a part of the congregation. She, as, as we see, moves alongside, get the contrast here, a very wealthy entrepreneur female and a very poor woman who is trafficked. They team up together. Those are the first two people that Paul uses to establish this church at Philippi. And so the story, just when you thought, well, that's pretty exciting, it gets better. It gets better because here's what happens next. So don't you guess that the owners of this young woman, when they see that she's been set free or she's no longer able to do this fortune telling, that they would just be as happy as clams that, that this woman has had this great thing happen to her. Well, actually, no. They were furious, infuriated that this had happened to her. And so they call the local magistrates and say, and tell them what's happened. And, you know, commerce is being affected here. And so what happens next is the worst thing that could happen to Paul, and it's the best thing that could happen to Paul. Because what they do is they start beating Paul and Silas. Paul is a Roman citizen. And you can't do that without due process. And so they violated Roman law, but we'll get to that later. And so they beat Paul and Silas and apparently the rest of the group as well. And they put them in jail. And then moving along in the story in Acts 16, 25, here's what happens next. Luke must have been in there too because he's telling the story firsthand. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Let me just pause for a second here. Because this guy, this jailer, was, was a Roman. He worked for the government of Rome. And as a Roman, glory and honor were their trademarks. 
And the honorable thing for him to do if he failed in the duties that he was there to carry out, the honorable thing to do would be for him to take his own life. And so Paul, though, says this, Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the rest of the story is the gospel. Because what Paul says next is this, believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The gospel gets me every time. It's good news. It's such good news. Can you imagine? What news that would be to this blue collar worker who had been living for the glory that he hoped some Roman official, some bones that he would, that they would throw to him sometime. And then to have this little Roman citizen guy tell him, believe and you can be saved. You can be renewed. You can be restored, you and all of your household. And so the jailer was radically and immediately transformed as a result of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he takes Paul and all of his entourage into his home and he feeds them and they bathe and and they celebrate and rejoice together. It's an amazing part of the story. And I mean, just pause for a minute and think again about the characters that God has used to begin this church in Philippi. A very wealthy woman, a young poor woman, a Roman jailer. That's where he started. Do you think he might use every one of us in the process as well? This is a perfect example of he uses all of us We just have to present ourselves and we'll hear the same message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so brothers and sisters, I would say to you that with this backdrop, what happens next is pretty interesting. They discover that Paul is a Roman citizen and he begins a journey back to Rome uh, by way of Thessalonica and but The story then, which we'll pick up next week is, so guess where Paul writes the letter to the church at Philippi from? He writes them from a Roman uh, house arrest. He's under house arrest, literally chained to a member of the Roman guard 24-7. And he writes this letter back to the church at Philippi some 10 years after its establishment. That is a letter of joy. He's had a difficult journey getting to Rome, but he is the happiest man in Rome, the most joyful man in Rome. And his intention in writing to the church at Philippi and the church at Northland was to spread this message of joy and remind them to remind us of where our hope is, where our joy comes from, And what it looks like when we really do employ it 
in our lives on a daily epistle. We, on a daily basis, we need this epistle. We need a new epistle. We need a new message to the church. We need this because of the world that we live in, because the circumstances of our world are manifested differently than the circumstances of their world. But it's a lot of the same things. You know, a lot of the things that we deal with, we wonder, why is this happening to me? A lot of the circumstances of our lives are things that we have caused and we can't figure out how we ever got into this kind of routine that always ends up this way. A lot of the circumstances are because of things that we have left undone, the sins that we have done and the sins we, and the things we have left undone in our lives. And we just think, if I could just be a little better, if I could just do a little more, then this would not be happening to me. But that's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is that our hope is found in Jesus and him alone. And anything else we try to put our hope in, we will, we will be disappointed every time. Remember the definition, the thing that, not the, not the fragile little things that disappoint us, but the rock solid assurance that we can anticipate goodness that comes from God alone. And so with that in mind, let me just finally get to the text here. I promise the sermon's really short on the other end of this text. But I would be remiss if I didn't read you this first part of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And I think this is as far as I can get today. Because let me just take this one little phrase, to all the saints at Philippi. Do you think that everyone in the church at Philippi was a saint? Do you think that everyone who's in the church at Northland is a saint? It's a trick question. Because you are. You are. Here's how I know that. Because God doesn't see us through the lens that we see ourselves. God sees us through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a different lens. It's a different view. You can go from the beginning of scripture to the end and see that God always intended for us to see ourselves in, through this lens. From the beginning where the world had fallen, had left behind his plan for creation and for humans. And what happened was he said, okay, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to form a people for myself, a people that are the people of God. But it wasn't enough for them. They needed more specificity. And so he said, okay, I'm going to give you these laws. If you keep these laws, you know, then that'll set you apart. But they couldn't keep the law. And so then they wanted a king. And he said, okay, I'll give you a king. It's not going to work, but I'll give you a king. So he gave them kings. He gave them kings. And they, but they didn't want to be ruled by those kings. And the kings were all just feet of clay. And they failed God's people. And God's people failed in the process. And they go through that. And the prophets spoke and called out and said, you're missing the point. You're losing your way. Come back, come back. But they couldn't do it. And then there's this 400 years of silence from God to his people. 
And then there was a light that shone in the darkness and Jesus came. Jesus came and it changed everything because through Jesus, we are the saints. Peter says that once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you didn't have a name, but now you do. You're the beloved sons and daughters of Christ. You are the saints. And we need to treat each other as the saints. I don't mean put up with wrong behavior or thinking, but I mean seeing each other as this is a beloved child of God. And I must see you that way. If I see you any other way, I'm missing the point of the gospel itself. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, we would be saved. That's a game changer. It changes everything. And it should change our perspective. Do you know what keeps us from embracing this, from from calling this to ourselves, from running toward this, what, what keeps us from being able to do it is the bondage and captivity that we put ourselves in. I'm sensitive in saying this because I know we have men and women from correctional facilities who are online and are hearing this. And you guys hear it a different way, I realize. But let me tell you that the captivity and the bondage that we create for ourselves is far greater than the bondage and captivity you're in right now. Because we create it, you've created it as well, by the things that we allow to be built up between us and each other. The things that we allow to be built up between us and God. And really we break those walls of captivity really with two words, help me. Help me. Words that can seem so hard to say, they're even hard for us to say to each other. It's especially hard for men to say it. Help me. You don't want to say that to anybody because we think that we should be able to figure it out for ourselves and we can't. We won't. Help me. It's what God has come to tell us. Just say that. Just receive that. And it can change everything. In the days following the hurricane and Hurricane Irma, when we had the rink set up as a shelter here on this campus, those were among the most exciting days I've ever had at Northland. And among the most discouraging days I've ever had at Northland. It was discouraging for everybody I know. Everybody had lost, their, lost power and, and it was a really uh, confusing and difficult uh, days and, and weeks for some people. And I know it pales in comparison to what's going on in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and, and some of the uh, Central American islands right now and, and countries. But for us in those days, we had set up uh, over here in the rink, we had 100, up to 140 special needs adults who uh, were there. Many of them had helpers with them, so it was packed out over there. And along with that, FEMA and Red Cross and our own emergency management operations from Seminole County were also staffed over there in the rink. And for many of us, those days were just days that we would spend here much of the day just 
talking to people and, and relating to people and responding to people and trying to point them toward resources and some we could help and it was, it was awesome when we could and some we couldn't help them and it was discouraging when we couldn't. And, and so we, but they were long, long days. And on this one particular day, a young woman came in. I, ne- I didn't and I don't know her name. But she came in to the rink and it was clear that she was looking for some kind of help. But that it turned out we were not able to provide her because I watched her go from person to person and ask for help, ask for something. I, and I heard one, I, and I saw and heard we had great people over there staffing that and people would offer advice and, and I overheard a couple of say, uh, you might want to talk to the Red Cross about that. And another person said, you might want to, FEMA's taking application, you might want to talk to FEMA about that. And, and she went from person to person, and again, I didn't have any direct contact with her. But then, all, then she was gone, and, and I, didn't, didn't know, I didn't know when she left or where she went. And a couple hours later, I was leaving the campus, and I was driving away, and I got to the corner over here, 1792 in Dog Track. For those of you in other parts of the world, that's just about 1,000 feet uh, down the street here. And, and uh, I, I saw her. I, we locked eyes. And she was just sitting on the sidewalk. And I saw her just, and there were people kind of coming and going from her. And I mean, it, it was kind of a weird scene. And I, I pulled up to the light, and, which was not working. And uh, I was waiting to cross. And I first just drove on. I just thought, it's been a long day. Drove on, and then I did that thing that some of you do where ah, I have to go back. And so uh, I'm not the hero of this story, let me just tell you up front. So I go back and I pull into the parking lot and, and I get out of my car and I go and I just kind of hunker down beside her and I said, hey, I work at that church over there. I saw you come in there. Um, were we able to help you? No. Okay. Well, were you looking for something in particular? Yes. And I said, well, was it housing? No. I said, well, do you need food? No. And so I went through some other questions like that, you know, and each time it was just one word answers. And she was tr- clearly not, she was not enjoying the conversation. And finally she just turned to me and said, hey, listen, I'm not a problem for you to solve. I said, okay. I think I get it. And so I, feeling a little bit self-righteous, I'll be honest with you, I walked back to my car thinking, well, you know, I gave that my best shot, you know, and got in my car and, man, I hate it when Jesus does this. <laughs> but I'm driving on down the road and he says, you know, she's right. You know, she's right. And I started trying to reason with him a little bit. Now, wait a minute. You know, I asked her these questions and and I had kind of gone into my customer service mode. You know, I'm in customer service here at Northland. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, you've got a problem. I've got a solution. You know, you came to the problem solver right here. You know, thinking again, I'd end up in a pretty good place in this story and it'd be a whole different kind of illustration for you. But that wasn't what happened. I did see her as a problem. A problem that I was there to solve. And Jesus just said to me, you need to figure this out. I've been working on it. 
Because if I see other human beings as a problem to solve, then I miss who they are as a saint. Because she was not my problem to solve. She was my saint to sit down beside and listen to. I'll handle that differently next time. But I've not seen her since, but I hope to. And I tell you that, again, clearly not the hero of this story. Just telling, I'll never, I'll never tell you this. I'm trying not to tell you a story anytime where I'm the hero. Because we're not heroes here. We're servants. We see that, though, in the way God has formed us and called us. Because one of the encouraging things that I see in this letter to the Philippians, and I see in in Thessalonians and Ephesians and Romans and Corinthians, and even in, in the stories that Jesus tells John about the churches in Revelation, that it would seem that the churches that are formed on this earth they have an identity, and, and perhaps that identity lasts through all eternity. It, they certainly do in the churches that are recorded in Scripture. And so we have this identity that we carry forward on and on. And I think Northland has an identity. We are known for some things. And we are known for, for some good things. I mean, starting with the fact, you know, Pastor Robert from Uganda was here last week, and yesterday he wrote me an email, not a letter, he wrote me an email telling me that he was on his way back to Uganda, and he said, let me just tell you how encouraged I was by being at Northland because of how everyone just accepted me and loved me and pulled me close to them, his words exactly, pulled me close to them, listened to me, and encouraged me and strengthened me. And he said, I go back to Uganda with a different perspective as a result of that. That's your identity. That's the kind of people you are. You've done that with people from all over the world here. You have been accepting and encouraging and helped us to to do good things in other places and learn good things from other places all around the world, from South Africa to Namibia to Ukraine to Egypt to Uganda to uh, Sri Lanka to India. Uh, I could go on and on and on. Dozens and dozens of places. That's your identity. That God, for whatever reason, has called us to be a global church as well as a local church. Because we are connected to the greater body of Christ. That is your identity. I saw that identity yesterday morning in the serve teams that went out from here. Hundreds of you went out into this community, gathered in the foyer first at a time of worship. And then you went out and served all over this community. In the name of Jesus, not just the name of Northland, but the name of Jesus. And in doing that, you expressed your identity as the body of Christ in the way you served. That's a part of your identity. It's always been a part of the identity of this church to do that, to serve. We're here to serve. The other way, you've always been a generous church. Whenever needs have come up, no matter how much fretting we do, you have responded. You always do. You've responded in times of hurricanes and tragedies. You've responded in times of, even like this week with the Las Vegas shooting, I know of several groups who have gathered every day at that very hour to pray 
for the people of Las Vegas and for those victims and families of those victims. Please continue that. That's who you are. That's your identity. And so our identity going forward needs to be found not only in those things that God has done in the past for us, but what he will do in the future for us. And it all comes down to being able to say these words, help me. That's what we'll hear and that's what we'll say. We help each other. I want to invite right now the communion stewards to move to the locations from where they're going to serve you communion. I want to encourage our friends online, wherever you are, any elements you have, anything you can eat or drink, you can use to celebrate this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But the reason we have this remembrance that Jesus gave us was so we would remember that he has come to be our help. He has come to be our strength. And we gather around this table to remember that because